So uh, hopefully you've been able to take advantage of two of the gospel, one of the two gospel life classes that have been going on um, downstairs during the nine o'clock hour before the service. We've got the art and science of studying scripture right below us in the fellowship hall and also Reformation profiles going on in the library. Uh, from all that I've heard, they've been really great. And Reformation Profiles has been going through a couple of main characters in the Reformation. We celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation at the end of this month. This morning they were talking about Sola Scriptura and Martin Luther. I want to talk about another guy. His name's Waldo. Where's Waldo? Lyon, France, actually, Hector. He was in Lyon, France. Peter Waldo was a merchant in Lyon, France, back in the late 1100s. He died in the early 1200s. So if you're kind of building a, a timeline in your mind, that was about 500 years before Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses of the Door in Wittenberg. And now we are celebrating the 500th anniversary of him doing that. So this is 500 years prior to Martin Luther taking that bold step in 1517. Well, Peter Waldo of Lyon, France, began to have the Spirit of God work in him. And he began to search for answers. He had this question in his mind, how can I be righteous before God? Sounds similar to the same question that a lot of reformers asked many centuries later. He went to a priest and asked, and the priest was kind of like, oh, I don't really know what to tell you, Peter. Well, being a wealthy man, he spent his money to buy a Latin translation of the Bible, the Vulgate. Okay, And he began to read the Vulgate, and the Lord used his word to open up Peter Waldo's eyes to the gospel. And he came to faith in Christ 500 years before the Reformation of the Church. Waldo ended, ended up spending the rest of his wealth and giving it to the poor. Part of the way that he used that wealth that he was giving to the poor was not just through physical means, but he used his wealth to hand copy the scriptures, the entirety of the Bible and also New Testaments in French. He gave the world the first modern translation of the Bible. Peter Waldo and his contemporaries, his wealth financed it. And then he organized a group of men called the Poor Men of Lyon, and these poor men of Lyon would travel throughout Europe and they would go around as peddlers. They would have their wares in a box and they would go to homes, all kinds of homes, but particularly rich homes where they knew there was some money to buy some of their wares. The lady of the house, perhaps, or maybe a servant, would allow this peddler in, one of these poor men of Lyon, into the house and he would sit down and he would hold his box and say, I have something here that is the most valuable thing in the world. And of course, that's, that's a great intro for a sales pitch. And the person of the home would say, so what, what is this? And this peddler, this poor man of Lyon would then bring out the word of God. And the Lord used those poor men of Lyon to spread the gospel 500 years before the Reformation in many significant places throughout Europe. When, when I say that about the peddler with the wares and the, maybe the, what you might call a slick sales line, this is the, got the most valuable thing in the world inside here, maybe it makes you chuckle a little bit inwardly. Not many of you chuckle outwardly a minute ago. 
I think the question that I would ask this morning is, do you actually see the Word of God as the most valuable thing in the world? What is your spiritual attitude towards His Word? Does an inward chuckle, huh, the most valuable thing in the world, I could, it's important, but I could think about some other, really in my life, there are some other things that are more valuable than God's Word. This morning we're going to be talking about God's Word, talking about its power, talking about its value. And I want you to begin thinking about that. What is your posture? What's your spiritual posture? What is your spiritual attitude towards God, toward God's Word? And consider, could that attitude towards the Bible be indicative of your own spiritual posture, your own spiritual attitude towards God Himself? We're in Ezra 5 and 6 this morning. You can find that, find that on page 392 of your Bible, at least if you're using one of the ones in front of you in the pew. In the last few weeks, Bill has been leading us through chapters 1 through 4. And if you hear last week, you, you realize there's some weird things going on in the narrative. The chronology seems to be a little jacked up. So this morning, we're going to kind of try to settle back in and get our bearings here so that we can understand what Ezra is trying to communicate to us in chapters 5 and 6. Look back with me at actually chapter 4. We'll, we'll back up a little bit. It's on page 391. says here, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to them ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So to back up a little bit, and Bill has done this a, lot, uh, a couple times over the last few weeks, the big picture here is that Israel, more specifically Judah and Benjamin, the two so the two remaining tribes, and the Levites, I guess, the three remaining tribes of the people of God were sent into exile in Babylon because they had sinned repeatedly. They had been called by prophets repeatedly. Return to the Lord, return to the Lord, and they refused. And God sent the people through the Babylonian Empire to exile in Babylon. God then promising, I will bring you back to the land. I will bring you back to myself in 70 years. The book of Ezra begins that repatriation back into the land. So we've already seen about 43,000 people come back in this first wave back to the land. And then they begin to do what they needed to do first. What the decree to Cyrus from, from God's mouth to Cyrus's ear in the form of a decree was to build the temple. First and foremost, build the temple. I desire myself to be worshipped is what God was saying. So they got back. 
And they begin to build the temple. They laid the foundation. There was weeping with joy. There was weeping with sadness. This temple was paltry compared to the old temple of Solomon. But nevertheless, the people had laid the foundation of the temple. And now we get here to chapter 4, and their neighbors begin to get upset. Well, they, they offer their help, and as we talked about last week, the people of God could not syncretize with them. They said, no, this is, this is our place of worship for our God, the God of heavens and earth, and we'll do this ourselves. And so those people began to oppose them. And if you remember from last week, 4.6, if you look there, it says they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. This is actually flash-forwarding to closer to Ezra's time. He's, he's a scribe, he's a historian. We'll meet him personally next week, actually. Ezra was a scribe and historian writing the history of the repatriation, okay? And so here, he's, also, he's actually saying, so there was opposition. They discouraged the people. But then there was actually a letter later on that was written, an official letter. And then there was a second official letter. Verse 7, we see that a letter was written in Aramaic and translated. This was to, the first one was to King Ashuharis. This is to Artaxerxes here. And there's a response in chapter 4, 17 through the end of chapter 4. And basically it was a stop work order. But I need you to see something. Go back to chapter 4, verse 6, and I need you to see this because it sets up everything else that's coming. Chapter 4, verse 4, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, and then go to verse 24, because this is actually how the chronology works. If you're reading the narrative, it goes from until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, and to verse 5, to verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Keep that thought in mind. We here in Chicago know a thing or two about buildings, Right? We know about how buildings can have a certain glory to them, all right? I snapped this picture two summers ago. I, I apologize for the, uh, the graininess of the, the picture today, but I don't know if it was, I don't know what happened. Anyway, you see that's the Wrigley Building and the Trump Building behind. I just caught it last summer. It was just a really great day to take a picture, and that's what came out. There's a certain glory to buildings. You, you, you go downtown, and you think, this place is incredible as these buildings rise up out of the ground. All right. The United Center is the house that Jordan built. Yankee Stadium, the house that Babe Ruth built. There's a connection between buildings and their builders or buildings and their creators. In the case of these two buildings, between their financiers, Wrigley and Trump. Okay. But there's also the shame of unfinished buildings. I snapped this stop work order right over here on Edgewater couple days ago, all right? A building there had been approved for permit to be remodeled, but they were a little sneaky sneaky and they tried to sneak a third floor up on top of the building. The inspector stopped by apparently and stopped the work, all right? 
When we see a stop work order, you begin to ask questions. You see an abandoned work site. It may or may not have a stop work order like this, but you see an abandoned work site and you, you begin to ask questions. Who's responsible for this? Who didn't think things through before they started on this project? Man, somebody must have been doing some shoddy work here for them to shut it down. Or maybe you ask the question, hmm, I wonder who ran out of resources here that they couldn't finish what they started. That's what's going on in Jerusalem. What I want you to get is this. They laid the foundation to the temple, and now we are in verse 24 of chapter 4, the second year of the reign of the king of Darius. You know how much time has passed since they laid the foundation? 15 years. A lot happens in 15 years. A lot doesn't happen in 15 years. To understand what's going on in chapters 5 and 6, we need to in, understand that intimidation and frustration stopped the reign of Cyrus, or I'm sorry, stopped the work of the temple from the reign of Cyrus until the reign of Darius. 15 years, but there was no stop work order. There was no official decree. This was a heart issue of God's people. They stopped work because their fear overwhelmed them. Their circumstances consumed them. There was no stop work order. In fact, what they did have officially was a decree from the emperor to continue working. That decree going from God's mouth to Cyrus's ears. They had full authority to rebuild the temple, but their hearts were ruled by their fear and circumstances. God's people had become spiritually complacent and culturally compliant. This morning's main idea is this. What revives the people of God from the stupor of spiritual complacency and cultural compliance? And the answer to that is we're going to see very clearly here is the word of God. What revives the people of God from the stupor of spiritual complacency and cultural compliance? The word of God. We're going to see three specific examples of how God's word works that organize the text of these two chapters, chapters 5 and 6 of Ezra. And they're also detailed in the books, the prophetic books of Haggai and Zechariah. So let's go to the first one. First, the word of God convicts, stirs, and revives God's people. I'm going to reread 424 again and then continue in the beginning of chapter 5. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and in Jerusalem in the, in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. You know what? Let me pause. I need to pray. Oh God, it is not a natural thing for us to 
humble ourselves before your word. It is not a natural thing. We are self-reliant, self-authoritative, proud people. But God, if there's going to be any revival in us, if there's going to be any real spiritual life, any real spiritual vigor in your individual people and in your corporate people, your church, we need you, oh Holy Spirit, to speak through your word and empower your word to be effective in us. I would ask that you would do that this morning for your glory. In the name of Christ, amen. So we just read the beginning of chapter 5. The word of God convicts, stirs, and revives God's people. 5.1 is the key verse in the entire narrative because it transitions from complacency to work. They had not been working. And now 5.2, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Josadak, They've been part of the narrative so far in Ezra. They were around. It wasn't like they were newly elected as building commissioners. These guys were around, and now they arose, and they began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. 5.1 is the key verse here, because without this injection of the word of God into this situation, nothing else would have happened. They would have remained in a state of complacency and compliance. Without 5-1, nothing else goes on. At the same time, because of 5-1, revival happens. What did God say through these prophets? In order to know what they said, from this key verse, we actually need to see what those prophets wrote. So you can keep your finger there on 392, Ezra 5, and flip over to the book of Haggai. I'll give you a moment to find it. It's the third to last book in the Old Testament. It's on page 791, if you can find it. Haggai and Zechariah were kind of a dynamic prophetic duo. All right? Haggai was a pretty straight shooter. His book is only two chapters long. Straight shooter. Zechariah was more of a big picture, prophetic, visions, oracles type prophet. 13 chapters in Zechariah. All right? A little more long-winded. But together, God used them at this particular time in the life of his people. What did God say through his prophets? Let's look at Haggai chapter 1. Verses 1 through 11. In the second year of Darius, see the connection there? Time stamp. In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Full stop. That's the first of two sermons from Haggai on this day. This first message says this, I, the Lord, speaking, realize the people have said, eh, God, it's not time yet. It had been 20 years 
since Cyrus's decree. 15 years since the foundation had been laid. Do you think it's probably time? First message. Second message, verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. So you guys say it's not time yet. Oh, but you're cool in your paneled houses, huh? Every day, the temple set in the foundation there, the foundation laid in Jerusalem, lies there, gathering the rain, becoming a muddy mess. The wood that I supplied through Cyrus, where is it now? Is that your paneling? You see this pile of rocks every day for 15 years. What does that say about your heart? How can you say to me, I love Yahweh, yet my house is in ruins? So he says, consider your ways. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, check your hearts. Check your hearts. My people, this is a heart issue. You lack in and of yourself. You never have enough. You're seeking all sorts of other kinds of ways to find yourself fulfilled. Yet your hearts are not set on worshiping me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 7. Consider your ways. Again, check your hearts. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. Get this. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. He calls them to consider their hearts. And then he calls them to consider how they would respond. Go up into the hills. Get some more wood. Get this done. God's people were living in sin. This wasn't just a case of which building to remodel first. This wasn't flip or flop, Jerusalem edition. And they were largely flopping. All right? 
This was serious business. This was sin. Sin, you say? Why sin? Because they were deliberately refusing to obey God's decree to rebuild his house. When we deliberately refuse to obey God's word, we are in sin. The unfinished temple was an insult to God and an affront to his character. As any unfinished building points to an unfit builder. God had said, my temple will be a place for the nations. A place to gather all of my people from all of the earth to worship me. And yet, because of your circumstances, because of your fears, you stopped this? See, your sin, your, your lack of king-mindedness, God-centered worship, is slowing down my purposes, my people. You are putting panels in your houses when my house is in ruins. There should be people coming to Jerusalem right now saying, we know that you have the true God. The glory of his temple speaks it. The beauty of the sacrificial system where we can be forgiven by the death of another heralds it. That we can come full of sin, aliens, not Jews, and come to you, the Jews, and to the God of the Jews and say, take us. And the temple says, yes, come. And yet for your 15 years, you have settled you have complied. You have become complacent. And you have sinned. This is not about whether or not to have a nice home. But it's about putting first things first. They were neglecting God's word. And if I can be so bold as to say this, it is an unbiblical statement to say ourselves, I have a God-centered life, but his word has no real presence in it. Can you see the downward spiral here? The erosion of a God-centered life, a God-centered people? They received clear direction from God to return to him and to center around the worship of him. Yet their fears and circumstances, you might think of Jesus' words in Matthew 13, where tribulation or persecution on account of the word chokes out the gospel seed. These fear and circumstances overshadow God's clear decree. Time passes. Fifteen years is a long time. Time passes. The heart gets hard. Spiritual complacency sets in. You know, the word just doesn't do it for me anymore. I feel like I've read it all. So having spiritual complacency, we then settle into a posture of cultural 
compatibility as we're satisfied and comfortable in the paneled houses, houses of our own making, wasting the resources of our time, our treasure, our talent, things that have been given to us for worship of God, for the gathering in of the nations. And yet we use them to comply with culture. Brothers and sisters, I think we have to particularly think on this. Again, this is not an anti-materialistic or anti-wealth or anti-homeownership passage. Anti-interior decorating, anyone? This is a passage about making first things first, putting God in the center and letting him organize everything outside of that. This needs to be said particularly to us as rich Americans. Yes, I do say that rich Americans, that includes us all. The materialism that seeps into our very being calls us, tempts us, woos us as sirens wooed Odysseus to come spend your time spend your treasure spend your talent for your own paneled house it only results in death it only results in bags with holes in them we feel we never have enough hypothetical hunger and thirst. So we always feel. We need the word of God to speak truth to the power of materialism in us, in me. To be able to say, God, yes, I surrender my time, my treasure, my talents, to you, would you organize them? If you want them organized, do you know where you go to organize them? To the truth that speaks to power, God's word. You're saying, could, would God even use drought to shake his people? Yes, he would even use drought. Is he using a sort of drought in your life to shake you? He may be. I'm not implying that every single experience of suffering in our lives is in response to God shaking us out of sin. Not at all. But I think we, hear, we see here specifically that when materialism and comfort and cultural compliance becomes our idol, then he will shake in those areas. And it's best, it's best that we respond rather than double down and try to make those, try to fix those areas. Okay? Okay. 
he can be, he could be using the lack that you feel this week to prompt you to return to him again. Yes, he definitely could. You may know what scurvy is. Scurvy, R, like pirate scurvy, all right? Early symptoms of scurvy include weakness, feeling tired, sore arms and legs. Yes, it was often found on ships till the mid-1700s when a Scottish scientist discovered that vitamin C healed scurvy. As scurvy worsens, your wounds don't heal as well. Your personality can change. And finally, death can come from infection or bleeding. And scores of people, more than scores, scores is only 20s, many, many people over the centuries died on ships because of scurvy. The thing is, it it had a straightforward cure. Eat citrus, drink lemon juice, miss scurvy. Too many of us are suffering from spiritual scurvy. It's not that we're dead, but we are walking in a certain sort of spiritual weakness, a certain sort of spiritual unhealth. And the nutrient that you need, the Word of God is right there for you to have. Oh, but that's too easy. The Word of God, I know the Word of God. I've been to Sunday school since I was five. I'm here in church this morning, aren't I? The Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God. That sounds too easy. It sounds too straightforward. And to be honest, I don't understand it. So what is that posture towards God's Word? Maybe you're a Moody student here this morning or a Trinity student, and you're like, I'm in God's Word every single day, and it's not giving me life right now. Your spiritual posture towards it is textbook. Figure it out. Analyze it. Understand it. Here's the thing. God's word from Genesis 1 where God speaks and life happens all the way through the rest of scripture it's constantly God's voice that brings life. God's voice that brings revival. God's voice that brings renewal. So for us to say, eh, God's word, I don't really know if that can do it this time. You better believe it, ha- it, it will. It always has and it always will. Does it, mean it, does it mean it will always feel the same? It will always give you the same mm, goosebumps every time you read it, the same encouragement to take through your day? No, not necessarily. But do you trust God enough that the means that he provided to grow you, to save you, to grow you, to carry you into glory is actually what you should be engaging daily? Do you trust that he can use his word in your life? We might need to repent in this, if you can hear me well on this. When we have attitudes towards God's word that are suspect, that are not humble, when we use 
our predisposition towards it. Well, it's ne- it's never really been effective in me before. Or there was a time when I would read my Bible often. Or there was a time when I would sit under God's word in church often. But you know, that time was then. This time is now. So because of my experience, I don't think it's going to work now. Would you please repent of that? You and I, when I fall into the same thing, we are in sin. We are saying, God, you have not actually provided what I need. You have not actually given me the means to know you and to follow you. You are then supposing that God has held out on you. That requires repentance. It requires, God, I am sorry for this. Would you change my mind? Would you change my heart in how it sees your word? And then it requires trust. And yes, Lord, I'm going to pick it up and I will read. I will listen. I will sing. Because I trust that you will use it in me to revive me. Second, the word of God supports the leaders of God's people. We'll flip back to Ezra. Again, we see in 5.2 that Zerubbabel and Joshua rise up and they begin to build. And the prophets, of, listen, hear this, they had prophesied. Then the guys arose to begin building and the prophets were with them, supporting them. Dave Shire used to always laugh when um, others would try to help him do stuff because Dave is an expert at everything when it comes to building. And especially those of us who spend more time in school than with a hammer don't always do it as well or with any type of skill as Dave does. That may have been what Zerubbabel and Joshua were thinking here. So now the two prophets are going to come help build? I don't think that's exactly what's going on. These two prophets were going to continue to support the work. See, what happens here is that they are immediately challenged. Verse 3, At the time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shetharbazani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus. Hear this. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this. What are the names of the men who are building this building? But... The eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So they were immediately challenged. They were threatened now with a real stop work order. And they're asked, who gave you this decree, and what are your names? Look a little further down in chapter 5 there. Verse 11 is where we get the response. This is in the letter to King Darius. These two bureaucrats are telling Darius what, how these men responded. Verse 11, and this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. Boom. Divine, beautiful anonymity. 
We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. Did you hear what they just said? These, these men, these two leaders specifically, who themselves were stuck, they were stuck along with all the people in complacency and compliancy, now are certain and confident in who they are. God's word had had its effect on these men. But I don't see that there. You're right, because it's in Haggai. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Listen to this. In the seventh month, so this is during the building process, the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw the house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet, now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came up out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Haggai told them to be strong he says, I am with you. My spirit remains with you. Fear not. He spoke this to the leaders, but did you hear what he also said? This is for all of the people. God was addressing the leaders. You're strong. My spirit is still with you. Fear not. Work. He was speaking to these men who had begun to demonstrate that they were men of the word and it was flowing down into the people. That was one month when they got that message, one month after the restart of the rebuild. In Zechariah chapter 1, it's two months, two months, just listen to this, two months after restarting, Zechariah prophesies this. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But, says Zechariah, they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? And how do they respond? 
says here, So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. So it appears that as they were working, they got fearful again. They wondered if God was actually going to make this happen. It seems as though they began to think, you know, but this place, it's not really like our fathers had. It's not good enough. I don't think we should actually or can actually make it a place where God's glory will be seen. And Haggai and Zechariah step in and they say, don't fear and don't be like your fathers. Don't fear and don't be like your fathers. Look back in the past. They did not listen to my word, says the Lord. And because of that, they were sent into exile. Do not be like your fathers. Trust me. Trust me. I know that some of you wrestle with this. I know that some, maybe all of us, in ways to different degrees, wrestle with daddy issues. Wrestle with, will I become like my father? Men in the room, I know you think like this. I know I think like this. Will I become like my father? That doesn't always mean it's a bad thing. But our fathers are all sinners. Our fathers all have faults. And some of us have seen their sins and faults displayed with great clarity and pain in the lives of our families, in the lives of maybe a church, and in your life in particular. They demonstrated that they did not hear and obey the word of the Lord, and it showed in their lives. God is saying, don't be like your fathers. Be like your leaders. Your leaders are hearing my voice. They're working. They might fear, but then they let their fear be addressed by my word. They have my spirit. And they respond in repentance. Yes, we were trending down that road of returning to the ways of our fathers. We repent. God, please finish this work. And then Darius replies. And Darius replies in chapter 6, with power and with provision. He gives them everything that they need. An abundance, sort of like Cyrus's original decree, an abundance of things that they needed. He gives them a second royal decree, a second decree from God's mouth to Darius' Darius's ears to the people of God. And he says, finish it. And I'm going to give you all that you need for all the sacrifices. I'm going to give you all that you need to finish the temple. And so, the word of God prospers and finishes God's work. Look at chapter 6, verse 13. Then, according to that word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, 
Shathar Bazanai and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. Real quick stop here. I think that was a, a learning moment, a teachable moment for the Jews. We tend to hem and haw when it comes to obeying the king, but their much lesser king, they obeyed with all due diligence. Made it happen. Snap, snap. Verse 14, And the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes the king of Persia. Jehiru's decree it originally was the God of Israel. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. We're not going to turn there, but in Haggai 2, this is three months after restarting, God tells them, my people, the unfinished temple that was among you was like a dead corpse. And if you know anything about the law of the Israelites, you couldn't have a dead corpse just lying around. It made you unclean. But God said, you are doing well to finish it. And he says, from this day on, I will bless you. In Zechariah 1, 7 through chapter 6, verse 15, which is five months after restarting, they still hadn't finished yet, Zechariah gets eight prophetic, incredible visions. You want to read some crazy stuff this week? Read those chapters in Zechariah. Read all of Zechariah. Because in Zechariah chapter 7 through 14, now it's two years into the four-year rebuilding process, Zechariah gets this collection of oracles that are characterized by God blessing his people and the return of the king. And so he says, this, this here, this is good. I will bless you, my people, from this day forward. But there is a king who is coming, a king that you have not seen and you will not see. There is a king who is coming. He's setting their, their hearts, he's setting their affections on that king and on the future, and it energized, his word energized them to finish God's work. So as we just read, the temple is finished. The temple is finished. Where God could dwell with man is once again finished. This is good news. But it wasn't the greatest news. The greatest news was that, as I just said, this was meant to point to a temple that was still to come. A temple where God would not only dwell with man, but God would dwell as man. And Christ, the one, would say, this temple will be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. I need you to hear this if you're thinking, man, he was just bashing us this morning. we got to get into our Bibles. Listen. Christ is the Word. So you cannot say, I have a Christ-centered life without having a Word-centered life. If you want to know Christ more, get into who all the Christ is in His Word.
I got to show you these two slides because it blew my mind when I saw them. Zechariah will blow your mind if you read it. Zechariah 6, 11 through 15. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown. This is one of those big visions. Make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua. That's Joshua, who we've been reading about, same guy. The son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Han, the son of Jephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Again, Zechariah is giving them this future orientation. You're saying, okay, but I wasn't there right then. I wasn't rebuilding the temple. I'm not exactly sure what all the flowery prophetic language means, but I do see the branch. The branch is definitely Christ. The branch will branch out from this place and the branch will gather in all of these people from far off that shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you say, really? I say, really? Yes. Ephesians 2, 13 through 22. But now in Christ Jesus, who you, were, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer saints and you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see these radical, big picture kingdom connections, people? That these 43,000 repatriated exiles trying to figure out how to be God-centered people and the word of God blows into them and revives them. How that same word of God prophesies through Haggai and Zechariah looking forward to the arrival of the word made flesh. And that word made flesh goes to the cross so that he could unite people in himself to make one new people, one new temple, in fact, in him. 
and how the word of God continues to be proven true. And we stand in the midst of that last sentence. We're being built together. Every believer has the spirit in him or herself. Yes. But we are also being built together as a local church, being built together as the universal church of Christ, filled with his spirit for the glory of God, the bride that one day will be joined to her groom, Jesus Christ, into eternity. And guess what won't be there in Revelation? You can read it yourself. The temple. Because there is no temple where the Spirit of God dwells in His people and where Christ is. That will be the ultimate of God-centered worship. How about you this morning? I would, I would plead with you, urge you, if, if you are saying, I do not know this Christ this morning. This Christ died to bring you into His family. He died to forgive your sins. And would you trust him this morning? Oh, Jesus, I, I don't know what that looks like, but I trust you. I don't want who I was. I want who you are. I trust you this morning. If you're a believer that, failed, that feels like you're a failed building, that maybe God has stopped working on you, be assured the Spirit dwells in you. He is continuing his work in you. And you are being built together with these people and with the believers throughout all of history and throughout all of the world into a holy temple, a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. And get this, if you're saying, does, does this mean that I read my Bible all day every day? No, not necessarily, but it means that you root yourself in God-centered worship in the Word. And then the Spirit takes you out. The Spirit takes you out. Imagine that. If, if every, one, every believer has the Spirit in them and they are a mini temple in a way, every place you go becomes a place of worship. Every place you go becomes a place of worship. Abraham Kuyper wrote this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. And that is because he sends his people into every realm of culture and society and life. So engage the word again this week. Read it, listen to it, study it, sing it. Come to class and learn how to do the science of it next Sunday morning. Grab a brother or sister today and say, can we just have a heart-to-heart -heart here and just say, so how do you center your life in God's word? What does it look like for you to know God's word? How do you study it? How do you make time in your day? What does it look like? Talk to Esteban about downloading the Streetlights audio Bible app. An, an, an app that I love is called RefNet. It's, it's by Ligonier Ministries. Tons of good stuff on there. And consider, as you go out and take the worship of God as many temples into all of these spheres of life, how he might use you to insert the word of God into relationships that you have. 
Would you risk that? The revived people of God, we won't read it, but at the end of chapter 6, the people are revived. And they're revived in some specific ways. They remember that they are a passed over people. That God's wrath was put out on the Egyptians and they were saved by coming under the blood of the Lamb. They become a pure people because of the blood of the Lamb. They turn from their sin and they turn to God. And they are a joyful people because they understand we're God's people. He's shown us so much pleasure as to center our lives around him. Oh, what grace that God would communicate with people who have for their entire lives until he turns their heart rejected him. Yet he steps in through Christ and says, know me, trust me. This is who God is. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask that your spirit would continue the work in our hearts. Make us people that are rooted in the Passover, in the the blood shed by the Lamb. Make us a people that long for greater holiness and purity. Give us a, a joy that is rooted in being a saved, redeemed people. We thank you for your word. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.